Hello there, everybody. Welcome to the Dharma Toolkit Daily Podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. On my own in the team today, mainly because we've got tons of guests. I'm very happy to be in another week of podcasts, coming to the end of week two. And we've been getting more and more international as we've gone. We've got some specials lined up from New York, from London, from San Francisco. But today's episode is going to be focused on India. I'm very happy to have a few guests with me who work with communities in India via charities based in the UK who are launching, like many people, emergency responses to the situation in India around the coronavirus. They're also all old friends of mine, which means it's kind of double delightful. And I'm going to introduce them from their various far-flung places in the order that I see them on the screen, starting with Padma Dhaka, who's in his car... He looks like he's about to land an airplane or something, but he's actually sitting in his car. How are you doing, Padmadak, and why are you in your car? Hi, Chandradasa. I am in my car because I'm working from home at the moment. I've got three young kids in the house, and the car is the only place where I can get any quiet at the moment. So that's why I'm here. Are the kids behaving themselves? Uh... Not really. <laughs> Are you homeschooling them? Have you got like, a uh, curriculum? Well, I'm, ho- I'm homeschooling with the curriculum as well as trying to run Karana at the moment. So it's a bit of a challenge. More or less, they're okay. More or less, they're okay. Grand. Well, we'll hear a bit more about Karana Trust in a second. I'll jump over to somebody else who also works for Karana at the moment, Sudika. Hey, Sudika, how are you? Where are you? How many kids are screaming around you? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks, Chandra Dasar. I'm I'm at home in South East London in East Dulwich. My kids are all grown up now, so we've had the odd sort of shouting fit over the last couple of days, um, mainly because of sort of cancelled gap year plans and you know so on. So I think it's quite frustrating being a, a 19, 20 year old at the moment, but no, but generally we're fine. And last but splendidly not least, Adratara, who's joining us from. I'm joining you from Tiratnaloka Retreat Centre, which is a women's retreat centre in Wales, where we've got a community of nine, but there's eight of us here at the moment, all working out how we're going to run our retreats online and how we're going to respond to the situation in our own way from mid-Wales. Before we dive into stuff around your work in India, everybody, how are you doing personally? How have you found the last couple of weeks? It's a time of massive change and very, very quick change. And that's very unsettling. And I think it's taken it's taken more energy than I thought just to work out where we are and what we're doing, because the ground is shifting all the time. So I feel very fortunate to live in a Buddhist community where, you know, we can all talk about what's happening for us and living in such a beautiful place. I was speaking to a friend in India today who's in a two-bedroom flat, quite a small flat. I often go and stay with her. And she's got five family members at home and food is getting very expensive there and it's very hard to get any privacy. And she's been to stay with me a number of times in Wales. And she was saying that is the best place on earth to be um, on lockdown because we've got all this space and the Brecon Beacons National Park to go and walk in. And so in some ways I'm feeling very fortunate, but it is a very unsettling time to work out what to do next, really. And have you still got the police patrolling the Brecon Hills to stop people coming in? (laughs) Yeah, so when there was um, the weekend before the full lockdown... I've never seen the Brecon Beacons National Park 
quite so busy and our back road was just full of cars and everyone was coming to go on walks and have picnics and things. So the police, when we went into the lockdown, had a kind of crackdown and have pretty much effectively closed the national parks, closed all the car parks, closed off this valley, not physically, but they've said that visitors aren't allowed and they've been patrolling with a police car just checking no one's going to have a picnic, which I thought was quite funny. I didn't think that Wales would be the centre of the police lockdown, but um, clearly it is. <laughs> You're the only Buddhist community in the world with your own private security force, just like yeah. outside. Yeah, it has to justify why we're here by saying, no, no, honestly, we live here, we live here. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Pabadaka? What's it been like? Well, it's been very stressful for me and for us at Karana. Obviously, we're hearing... You know, first-hand accounts of how difficult it is for people on the ground in India. Although over here in the UK, it's challenging being in, in lockdown, but we haven't had food run out. We're not living in a slum. We've got a healthcare system that we can fall back on. So it's stressful. Uh, it's been worrying, but got to keep these things all in perspective and we know that in the west a lot of us are you know quite privileged in terms of the resources that we have access to and the levels of difficulty and an extreme fear that many people around the globe will be experiencing at the moment and Sudika, apart from gap year battles with your kids how's it been for you sort of adjusting to the weirdness well i mean on a daily level I mean, I've been amazed how, how sort of smoothly everything's just transitioned into going online. My daily schedule is roughly the same as it was, apart from, you know, all the face-to-face meetings I was having before. It's all kind of moved fairly seamlessly online. So I'm involved with the Brixton Buddhist Centre quite a lot, and all of our classes have gone online. We're teaching meditation online. My wife's teaching yoga classes online. You know, in, in a certain kind of way, on the surface level, everything's kind of moving along as it was before. I mean, I must say the atmosphere around in London is quite strange at the moment. There's a sense of people bracing themselves for something that's going to be potentially quite frightening, I think, over the next couple of weeks in terms of the numbers of people involved. We live very close to King's College Hospital, which is one of the big hospitals where they're taking people there. And a lot of people in the area work in the hospital. So I think one's aware of a sort of background level of tension and anxiety. Although, you know, as Padmadaka said, in terms of our day-to-day lives, everything is reasonably comfortable. You know, we have a nice house to live in and the milkman still delivers oat milk and orange juice every morning to our doorstep. You know, so relatively privileged compared to the people we're talking to in, in India and Nepal. So we're going to talk a little bit about India today. There's a lot going on in India in response to coronavirus, I guess, like everywhere else. And there are many more important things for people in India to think about than doing this podcast. That said, we have some friends who are going to come and do some podcast episodes with us at some point, and we can make that happen. But India has been in our minds here this week, largely because Padmadaka and the team at Karnar have just launched a new appeal to do with responding to coronavirus in India. So we thought it'd be great to have Karna on and to have Vajratara on from the India Dhamma Trust, just to talk to us a bit about their work. So Padmadaka, what's the story of this appeal? Well, just in case anybody listening to this doesn't know what Karana is, we're a charity that funds development projects in India and Nepal. We are 
made up mainly of Buddhists. We run as a Buddhist right livelihood. This is Karana's 40th year of its existence. So we were hoping to be celebrating our 40th year this year. But obviously, the situation has overtaken us, so we're not going to be having any celebrations this year. We fund approximately 40 different partner organizations. So they're locally run NGOs in India and Nepal. They collectively reach, on average, approximately 66,000 people a year. And then more widely, they're in contact collectively with about 500,000 people a year. So although we're a fairly small charity, we have quite a big reach in India and Nepal through our partners. So when the virus broke out globally in the last few months, it's obviously taken time for everybody to realize what was happening. And various countries went into lockdown. In India, the lockdown happened very quickly. So people were given something like four hours notice out of the blue at night that everything was going into full lockdown immediately. And that creates huge problems for well, for everybody in a country like India. But there's something like 300 million daily wage earners in India, between three and 400 million people. So a daily wage earner is somebody who, as it sounds, they earn their wages on a day-by-day basis. They don't get paid weekly. They work, they get paid that day. They don't work, they don't get paid. So a lot of them will work in manual work. It's casual labor or sanitation. So with this lockdown, they're all locked out of their means of income. No income, no food. The majority of these people won't have savings. They won't have a store of food. And the vast majority of them will be what's known as Dalit or tribal. So if you don't know what that means, they would be formerly known as untouchable. So they tend to be seen by other people in society as lesser or of lesser value. Obviously, to us and to anybody who's a practicing Buddhist, we see all people as being equal, but they are traditionally treated as lower or inferior. So this lockdown, the response to the virus itself, which some of the lockdown may have been necessary, but the lockdown itself has created undue and unnecessary hardship for millions and millions of people. So Karen and I decided very quickly that we were going to launch an emergency appeal. And the emergency appeal is to generate, we're trying to generate an additional 200,000 pounds within the next five or six weeks to provide emergency aid to our partners who are on the ground, that they can provide immediate support, food packages, medicines where they can get access to them, sanitation where they can get access to them, advice to people via WhatsApp or telephone helplines, so they can get aid to people who need it most right now. Karen has also been able to free up some of our money so that our partners have access to funds right now. I think if you talk to Sudika, who's the head of programs at Karana, he's got a lot of information about what our partners have been doing on the ground, but they've already been responding. They've already been getting help to people who most need it. And just to clarify for people at Madaka who might wonder, Karana's not funding 
explicitly Buddhist projects in India. You're funding NGOs that are not tied to either our community or have to be Buddhist in order to receive funds. Absolutely not. I mean, historically, Karana did fund mainly Buddhist projects in the early days, in the 70s and the 80s. But now, and probably for the past couple of decades, it's been a mix. Religion's quite important in India, as it is in many countries. So, you know, inevitably, a lot of the organizations we work with will have a particular leaning. So we're quite proud of the fact that we work with diverse communities. We work with Buddhist communities, got very big projects amongst the Muslim communities, particularly Dalit Muslim. So they're seen as untouchable within their own communities. We've got very progressive-minded Hindu community project in West Bengal, and we've recently started working with organizations that were seeded by Christian aid and who work with people who are discriminated against amongst the Christian community. So Karana is very broad range. I think as Buddhists, we're quite proud of that. It's just something that we want to fund that range of community. Over the last week or so, we've been in touch with all our partner organizations, so about 45 to 50 different organizations operating in all different parts of India. We've sent out a questionnaire to them saying, you know, what's going on in your area and what do you need? And we're starting to build up a picture of what's going on in different parts of India and what the emerging needs are. So as Padmadaka mentioned, there's a huge issue right now around food scarcity particularly amongst migrant and other daily wage labourers. And there's been quite a lot of coverage on the BBC, actually, of big migrations of migrant workers trying to get out of the cities and move back home. And in some situations being beaten by police or there was footage of some migrant workers being sprayed with disinfectant. And I think one of the things that's happened over the last few days is I think it's certainly in terms of the British media, it's pulled the curtain across on the enormity of the issue of migrant and daily wage labour in India. So I think India has deliberately been promoting an image of a progressive middle-class country and in a sense sort of hiding this issue very much behind the curtain. But what's happened since the lockdown, I think the curtain has been torn away from that. And in a way, this picture has become very, very obvious of something like 400 million people across the country who are living right on the edge of food poverty all the time. And it only takes something like this, you know, a disruption to their daily work to pitch an enormous number of people into extreme food poverty. So I think that that's one of the things that's happened. It's made explicit the kinds of issues that Karen has been aware of for many, many years. So there's an urgent need now around food scarcity. And a lot of our partners have been responding very, very quickly in terms of setting up emergency food supplies. A lot of the NGOs are getting special government permission so that they can go into the slums, go into the villages, go out to the outlying areas and help distribute food and medical supplies to the people who need it most. And most of our partners are engaged in that kind of work in some way or another. And another thing it seems to have catalyzed is quite a lot of community support from within India. Although, you know, we're giving money to this, you know, the Indian community groups themselves are leveraging a lot of money from within their own communities. There's been a kind of big outpouring of concern from people in India with money. People are leveraging money from corporate corporate funders, CSR. So there's been a kind of explosion of, of community-based activity in the communities that we work with to try and get those food supplies out as quickly as possible. 
And while that's been going on, a lot of our other partners are kind of trying to take a more long-term view of this and just say, well, look, this, this whole thing is going to play out. I mean, nobody knows exactly how this COVID crisis is going to play out in India. But the worst case scenario pictures for the numbers of people who might be infected are very, very frightening indeed. And of course, we have ways of containing the virus through lockdown, through hand washing and so on. But you know, in a lot of the communities we work with, I mean, there's, I think it's 200,000 people per square kilometer in some of the urban slum districts. So you, as Vajratara was mentioning, you have seven, eight people living together in a single roomed house. You have about a thousand people sharing a single communal tap. You know, how is it going to be possible to contain the virus once it starts spreading through those very tight-packed communities? So some of the projections in terms of, you know, how the virus itself might play out through India. Again, people are bracing themselves for a very extreme very dangerous situation where very large numbers of people are going to be affected. So a lot of our partners are kind of, as it were, thinking one step ahead into that kind of scenario. And then even beyond that, there's another scenario, which is once the whole thing is contained, you know, then there's going to be a massive rebuilding and rehabilitation project needed to rebuild this shattered day labour economy. People are going to need a lot of help to get themselves back on their feet and back achieving any level of financial security again after this is over. So I guess the picture that's emerging is absolutely enormous needs. And at the same time, you know, some really encouraging signs of a kind of powerful response from the communities themselves. And, you know, obviously we're keen as Karen, our trust to do whatever we can to kind of support that process, to support our partners one of the things we did immediately was to guarantee that we'd carry on supporting all our project staff for at least the next six months. So all the people involved in our projects, in a way, could just carry on their work for the time being without the organisations having to worry about keeping their teams together. So that was almost the first thing we did. And that was met with you know huge relief from our partner organisations. They were very, very grateful that we were willing to do that. So hopefully that's given them a kind of sustainability to be able to carry out this work over the next few months. Coming at it from another kind of quite different angle, I suppose, Vajtar, I'm aware of your work with the India Dhamma Trust, which is a Buddhist-specific project. Can you tell us something about what it's been like trying to figure out a response to coronavirus with people on the ground in India? Yeah, so the India Dharma Trust supports the Sangha, so the Buddhist community within India, to help people train in, well, the Buddhist way of life and the Buddhist path. So what you'll find in India is that historically many of what Padmadaka mentioned, the so-called untouchables, people from the very lowest caste in India, converted to Buddhism and would like to convert to Buddhism because Buddhism doesn't have a caste system and it teaches that everyone is capable of developing the highest wisdom, compassion and energy, same as everyone else. And so what you find in India is a lot of people are very enthusiastic about Buddhism and wanting to become Buddhists. And they need to be met with people who know what the Buddhist path involves and can help train and offer them friendship in that path. And eventually, if they'd like to, to become ordained into this particular Buddhist movement. So what the India Dharma Trust do is they support those people who are, if you like, trained Buddhists to help train other people to be Buddhists and help meet that need. And of course, you know, Sudhika mentioned people's wages. They're supported on a very basic wage, really, by the India Dharma Trust. They haven't had an increase in their wage for five years. 
and they raise half the money for their wages themselves and we raise the other half in the UK, Europe and Americas and Australasia. When I've been speaking to the ordination teams and the teams that we work with in India, they've been very concerned, partly because they don't know when they're going to be able to fundraise for their wages, because all Indian fundraising really happens face to face. They're concerned about that. They're concerned about their families, just like we are over here. And they're also organizing as Buddhist communities to help people on the ground to deliver resources to people who need them directly in their localities. We're coming at the sort of point of view of a kind of long term view of trying to keep the Buddhist teams together so that they can offer that help to people in this crisis and afterwards, because we don't really know what shape the world is going to take after this has all happened and what shape India is going to take. And we very much want them to be a part of what happens in the future, as well as what's happening now. So I know that a lot of those teams that I work with have been on the phone pretty much all day, just speaking to people, talking to them about their lives, offering friendship, advice, support and Buddhist tools to people living in extremely stressful and demanding situations. Just follow on from what Vajitara was saying there, and that. Although Karana and the India Dharma Trust are two completely separate entities with two completely separate sets of aims, we do overlap to some extent. And there are a number of projects that we fund in India that are run by members of the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order. And what we find is when there is a natural disaster or an emergency, order members are very, very, very quick to respond very quick indeed, very quick to roll up their sleeves and, and help. And members of the ordination team in India will be part of that, or they will be supporting people who are doing that. So right now, the work that the India Dharma Trust is doing is already making a positive difference to people. It's helping those who are rolling up their sleeves on the ground. And I think longer term, these Buddhist organizations and Buddhist centers are going to be really, really important throughout the next few weeks to support people who are going through incredible levels of stress and loss. And hopefully once this crisis is over, helping people to rebuild their lives around some sort of meaningful purpose. Yeah, well, I just really agree with Pamadaka. You know, when I talk to people, they're from these communities themselves, the communities who are affected, and they want, they naturally want to help and um, support them. And that's what they're doing. And the good advantage of the Buddhist communities is they can organize themselves very well in a certain way because the networks are they're all there in place. And the ideology is all there in place, which is, you know, that we're all human beings facing um, this situation together and that humanity is basically one and needs to support each other. And that's the kind of vision that they need now. And that's the kind of vision that they'll need in the future as well when India starts to rebuild after this crisis. Yeah, I was just going to add, just as an example, I mean, a few weeks ago before the crisis struck, I was in Nagpur visiting, you know, a lot of the community groups in and around in the slum districts around Nagpur and the old town in Nagpur. There's a very, very strong kind of indigenous Buddhist community in Nagpur. And I know, you know, over the last week or so, that community has really sort of kicked into action. One of the places that we fund is usually a computer training center. And they've essentially converted it into, you know, a center for collecting up 
relief supplies and distributing them into the slums. And so I think we've been really impressed and really moved by how quickly, you know, a lot of our friends in India have really kind of got stuck in to these situations. And, you know, they're going out with masks and with protective clothing to distribute relief supplies in those areas. So certainly in places like Nagpur and Pune, the work of the Dharma teaching and the social concern and the social intervention are very much intertwined those networks kind of run in parallel. So the networks that are used for communicating the Dharma are also being used to take supplies to the people who need them most. I guess we could probably do a whole other podcast about the radical nature of Buddhist practice in Ambedkara, India. I guess a lot of people hear this, they might feel cheered by the fact that people are willing to kind of mount this difficult work in the midst of their own difficulties and their own lives. Uh, how can people help the India Dharma Trust Vajratara? Well, the people can help the India Dharma Trust by making a donation. And um, we're going to be partnering up actually with Future Dharma Fund because Future Dharma Fund also raises money for Dharma projects, Buddhist projects all over the world, including in India. So we'll be partnering up with them, you know, so they could make a donation to the India Dharma Trust or to Future Dharma Fund. And if they've got a donation to India Dharma Trust to increase it at this time, you know, to share resources that we have all over the Sangha to enable those who need it most to get it. If you just put in Google India Dharma Trust or IndiaDharmaTrust.org, it'll be there. So we'll put in the show notes, easy links for you to respond if you remove to, to the India Dharma Trust work. And over at Karna Trust, what's the best way for people to engage with your current appeal? Similarly, go to our website and read about our appeal. Just to say that this paradigm that we're in at the moment is unprecedented. Often when there's a natural disaster or an emergency, it's somewhere else. Everybody else is okay and there's an earthquake or a, or a flood or a heat wave. The COVID virus is a great leveler. It's affecting everybody everywhere. Nobody is untouched by this. We all know people who've lost jobs. We've all been severely restricted by it. We're even starting to know people who've sadly lost their lives from it. We're all aware of the situation growing and seemingly getting worse globally. I'm very mindful of that. We're all, we're all in a way, as it were, in the same boat to some extent. And that's very, very unusual, very frightening. And at times like this, people are moved to help others. People are aware that other people are suffering as well. It is going to be harder for some people than others. In India, we've got something like 350 to 400 million people below the poverty line. The majority of those will be Dalit or tribal people. vast majority of sanitation workers in India are Dalits. Malnutrition, we know, leads to weakened immune systems. People live in high-density slums. They have no savings and no health care. And we know that even under normal circumstances, Dalit and tribal people, it's proven, face huge discrimination in healthcare because of the whole purity, impurity, touchability, untouchability. Karana is raising as much money as we can to get aid directly to as many of those people as we can through our partners. So we really want you to go online, go to our website and make a donation to people in India and Nepal who need help right now, who are going hungry, who don't have soap, who are not able to get to work. We need you to get online and give now. That's my Bob Geldof bit. I think we can say that we're getting a lot of requests in from our partners. We're getting a lot of applications, people asking for help. 
people who are doing brilliant work there on the ground, really getting out and reaching into the poorest areas. Um, really helping people. Um, in fact, just while we were speaking, I got something came up on my screen saying, you know, can you send us your form? You know, can, can you help us? So we want to do as much as we can to respond to as many of these requests as we possibly can. And, you know, the need is almost open-ended. There's, there's really no limit to how much money we could be giving into the situation. And everything that we do get, we will convert as quickly as possible into grants to those organisations. We're quite good in Tree Ratna with having a social awareness. There's been a very, very good emphasis in the last few years on engaged Buddhism and on people engaging with local politics, with climate change, with veganism. Now is the time for Buddhists to engage. Now is the time for Buddhists in whatever area that we're involved with, whether it's teaching online classes or mentoring people or raising money for charity or in India, getting out and helping people in your communities. Now is the time for engaged Buddhists to really engage, to really step up. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing this has really taught me, this whole crisis, is about resources, actually, and how there's this immediate feeling that we're all entering into this global crisis together, and it's affecting everyone. It's affecting everyone all over the world. And there's a tremendous amount of energy that's released to help everyone who's affected. And at the same time, there's this sort of block in energy where what we're being told to do is to stay at home. But there are things you can do. And just to value the Sangha and the Dharma, and just as you're benefiting from those things. So people all over the world will benefit from those things. TheBuddhistCenter.com has got the Buddhist toolkit at this time. And we all need that. And we might need to share our resources in a way that helps everyone at this time it's not a time yeah as Pamandaka is saying it's not a time just to really literally just sit back and do nothing it's a time to really engage with the wider sangha and to give help where help is needed so there you go an urgent need to stay engaged some very concrete ways you can help right now particularly if as everyone said at the start you're in the relatively privileged position of being relatively safe and secure We've been very aware all through the past couple of weeks on this podcast that everybody has their challenges. There's a lot of fear around, a lot of difficulty, the beginnings of grief and loss. And at the same time, there's a wider awareness too of people needing support that you may be able to give. As usual, we hope that hearing these stories, hearing these voices helps you in your relative isolation, helps make that isolation a little more splendid. It would be super splendid if you can give from that place and just alleviate some of the potential suffering that's likely to occur in India. And that our fantastic friends are doing their utmost to try and alleviate. I'd like to thank Vajratara. Well, thank you very much, all of you, Sudhika and Pamadaka, because it's really just great to talk about these things and to get a clear picture of an overview of all the work that we're doing in India together and how it fits together. And, you know, sitting alone in Wales, just talking to people in India, it's really heartwarming to know that all of us are looking out for India in our own ways and helping in the ways that we know best. And thanks to Sudika for joining us from the couch in Brixton. Thanks, Jandratar. So it's been really good. It's really good talking in this way and just sharing our ideas. And very inspiring to be involved in this kind of work and to be playing a small part in making a difference in people's lives in this way. And from the, what kind of car is it, Padmadaka? It's the Volkswagen. It's from the folks from the <laughs> 1975 Volkswagen that Padmadaka is parked no, it's in. Not, 
it's not quite a vintage car. It's a bit of a banger. But no, John Dodassa, thanks very much for organising this. And thanks, Bajitar and Sudika. It's been great. I'd love to talk to you, you guys all the time. Thank you, everybody who's listening to this podcast. And a special thank you to everybody who's listening or anybody who's listening who's done a Karana appeal in the past. It's that your work then has made such a difference and money that you've helped raise whenever you did your appeal is going to people who need it right now through our work. So thank you, everybody. So thanks to all the guests. We'll be continuing to bear you in mind as a community over the next weeks, hopefully not too many months, but you never know. As usual, I'll remind you that you can meditate with us every day, twice a day. You can find the times on thebuddhacenter.com slash toolkit if you want to just cheer yourself in the morning or the afternoon or the evening, whatever you are, and just be joined by a terrific group of people around the world who want to sit with you and in a way make community every day with you. And if you're listening to this, on Friday the 3rd, we begin our first home retreat on thebuddhacenter.com. And the part of the home retreat is we know people have a huge number of circumstances that they're having to deal with. Some people are run off their feet, like Padmodaka, with three kids and very busy job. And it may just be that all you have time for is a little bit of daily inspiration just to keep a sense of your moodings or your direction with your Dharma practice. The home retreat is for you. And if you happen to find yourself furloughed and with lots of time and you're not quite sure what to do once the box sets are all done, there's loads of stuff you can engage with on these home retreats. So you'll find all of it at thebuddhacenter.com slash toolkit. We'll be blogging about it all week. We'll be sending out our newsletters. Sign up, take part, hopefully be inspired, and let's continue to make community in the face of all this. We'll see you again very soon.